Welcome. Welcome to Shareth Israel, especially for those of you who are here for the first time. And on behalf of all of us who are here often, we're really happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here tonight with our public defender, Jeff Adachi, uh, for a chance for us to hear from him, to ask questions, to have a conversation about police accountability and about community in San Francisco. And it's truly an honor to have each and every one of you here in our sanctuary with us. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Rabbi Julie Sachs-Taller. I'm one of the rabbis here at Sherith Israel. And like I said, it's my honor to be here with you. We're going to start with... We're, we're going to start with some general questions. And... Um, We'll let you answer them and get us going and maybe inspire further questions, which we'll then take from the audience. So first, talk to us about how, the, how people view the police in San Francisco. Well, first of all, I'd like to say I'm, I'm honored to be here and, and thank you to the congregation of uh, Israel for uh, hosting this event. Um, we're here to talk about a city in, in crisis. And when we come together, you know, and talk about an issue like police reform, your view of the police, and I mean everybody's individual view of the police, is different based on, on your experience. And I can say if you are a person of color in the city, the experience that you have is going to be very different than if you're not. And if you live in Pacific Heights, your experience is going to be different than if you live in Baby Hunters Point or Visitation Valley. And I think that the basic contradiction that we're seeing in San Francisco is in how people are treated. And when you see a young African-American man uh, being shot down uh, by police, by 11 police officers who surround him, and he appears to be moving away, uh, and they say, well, it's because he's holding a knife, and you just see this you know, hail of, of bullets, how many of us can imagine you know, being in that situation or having a brother or sister in that situation and, and watching that. And I think that that was such a shocking thing. And in looking at that video, I would hope that most people's reaction was that they were horrified by that. And even if you couldn't see yourself being in that situation or a loved one being in that situation, I think most San Franciscans looked at what happened to Mario Woods and said, that's wrong, that can never happen. That should never happen. So as long as we're getting started, I'm reminded I'm sitting here in my sanctuary and I have to teach a little bit of Torah. Um, so I'll say that what I was thinking about this afternoon was the famous tent of our ancestors, Abraham and Sarah. And what's famous about Abraham and Sarah is their hospitality and the sense that their tent was truly open. Uh, so I recently read a teaching that the, what made that tent open was actually the fact that Abraham and Sarah knew that they 
didn't know everything. Uh, and what it, made, what made it safe for people to come into their tent was that Abraham and Sarah didn't assume that they were always the teachers, but they knew that they had something to learn from everybody who entered their tent. And I found the teaching so important that whenever I think about how can I make my tent more open, that that's what I need to remember. And I, and it, I was reminded that of that in just what you were saying. So I wonder if you could talk about what is it, if you could teach me something, about what is it that makes it hard for people not always to relate to when we see a video clip. We don't relate to it in the same way. We don't all see it and feel the same way, right? Of course, people don't always feel the same way, but what is it that makes it so hard for us to understand how another person reads an article in the newspaper or how another person views a video clip? Well, it's, it's empathy and the level of empathy that you feel with the person that is in the situation that you're viewing. There, there's something called implicit bias, and there's been uh, about 60 years of, of study in, in neuroscience, and they talk about how we perceive each other. And there's actually a test called the Implicit Association Test developed by Harvard. It, it could actually measure the amount of bias that people have. And it flashes images, and you'll see an image of a white person and a black person in certain associations. And you have to make a decision as to whether it's a good association or a bad association. And I took the test myself and saw that, yes, I had biases. And most people do have biases, almost irrespective of who you are. You might call them preferences, but when these decisions are made in the context of a police officer deciding whether or not to shoot a gun or to arrest somebody, that's a pretty scary thing. And they actually have an implicit association test we can do on your computer where if you see somebody coming out of a store you know, with a cell phone versus a gun, you are going to associate your fear with the color of their skin. And so you're going to be more likely to, to pull the trigger on a person of color that's holding a cell phone. And so this is something that's been scientifically proven. There's a part of the brain called the amygdala that responds to, uh, you know, things that, that, that you perceive. And so we have this in all human beings. But the question is, when it begins to translate into decisions that are made, whether it's a police officer on the street, whether it's a prosecutor deciding how to charge somebody, or uh, you know a, a judge in court, there are life or death consequences. And all the studies have shown that when it comes to people of color, particularly African Americans uh, in, in the criminal justice system, that there is a disproportionate impact based on both explicit and implicit racism. By explicit and implicit, do you mean also conscious and unconscious racism that we know that we have and racism that we don't even know that we have? Or right. sexism? or Right. I mean, an example of explicit racism is what we saw in the Texas that were recently released by my office and, and by the police department finally. Right. We had the first group of Texas in... Uh, 2012 
that were discovered when a cell phone of a police officer who was uh, convicted of federal corruption charges in San Francisco uh, were revealed. And in those texts, he talked about white power. He called black people monkeys. He, he you know, they talked about cross burnings. Uh, there were homophobic statements that were made in there. And this involved not only a police sergeant, but 14 other officers who were engaging in this. That's an example of explicit racism. Mm -hmm. And maybe an example of implicit or unconscious bias? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to distinguish between those two because a person who has explicit biases also has implicit biases and probably vice versa. But an example of implicit bias is that an officer, I, I have a case that I had on today where an officer approached uh, a man who was smoking a cigarette, uh, you know, 15 feet in front of a building, which is a violation of, of this uh, health code. And, you know, in, in the report, he, he says, oh, yeah, I approached him because uh, he was violating the law. And he happens to be African-American. Right? We don't see anyone else being prosecuted or cited for that crime except for African Americans. Last year, there were 10 people in San Francisco, and, and you know you see people smoking all over San Francisco in front of buildings all the time. You can go by the state building and you see it. But seven out of the 10 people who were arrested for this crime were African Americans. And so that, that's 70%. That's an example of an implicit bias because these officers are making certain assumptions, right? And they're using this as a ruse to search people. Um, but, you know, probably a, a simpler example is, is just maybe a reaction that you have when you see a certain person come towards you or a person of a certain background that you associate with danger. And, you know, probably most people have experienced that. Probably what we all have. Uh, as long as we're talking about the, the texts that were found, and, and there were two rounds of them, right, or at least two rounds that were found, can you talk to us about what has been done and what can be done? Uh, because now, now that that's exposed, what can we do about racism and anti-gay attitude in the police department? And actually, what can we do about it among our entire community? Because what's in the police department isn't only in the police department. Well, we talked about a culture in the police department that allows racism to fester. Um, and this is something that Jewish people are very familiar with because of your history in the Holocaust and what happened in Nazi Germany. And it's the same thing, and that's, except this is happening in, in San Francisco in the 21st century. Right. And the reality is, is that you have people who subscribe to what I would call hardcore racist ideals. These are people who are taking the time on their cell phones to text, text racist things to other police officers and friends. And you might think, now who does that? Who takes the time to actually express their racial bias in such an open way? Well, it's, it has to be somebody who not only subscribes to these views, but really believes and lives by it, and that's that's a pretty scary thing. I mean, you know, we we think about the KKK in the South. You don't think about the police officer who you see walking up the street thinking this way. 
And you mentioned the, the second group of, of Texas. You know, these were two Asian-American officers uh, out of the four who were engaged in, in, this, in, in, in this, this kind of, and they were doing the same thing, using the N-word, uh, making racist and homophobic, homophobic references. But what was really scary about this particular officer's Texas is that he was actually using these racist views to dictate how he did his police work, right? Because he would talk about, you know, shooting people down in the street. He would talk about, uh, you know, his perceptions of, 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 of people and also make the point that, yes, you know, I want to arrest that person for this. I want to put a case on a person like this. And so this is a very, very rare insight that we have into the, the minds of, of, of these police officers. And uh, again, they were acting on these biases. And so that sh should be a very, very scary thing uh, to all of us. It is scary. Can you talk, knowing the research as you do, can you talk about what you think the police department should be doing and maybe how that compares to what they are doing? Um, are they doing what they need to do to be accountable now that this has been found out? And the answer is no. I mean, the, the, the San Francisco Police Department is in crisis because it has failed to put in play, you know, the, the different levels that they, levers that they would need in order to hold people accountable. Uh, with the first group of racist Texas, those officers were never held accountable. The, the police department sat on that for two years, and Chief Sir claimed that he didn't know about it, you know, from 2012 until last year. Now, how is that possible that you get these texts from the federal government, you see that you have, you know, virulent racists on the police force, and you don't do anything about it? You, you, you know, you, you're just sitting on it hoping that no one's going to discover it. And had it not been for the federal government who were, was prosecuting those officers and that sergeant for corruption, had they not exposed that information, we would never know to this day. And some of those officers would still be out there policing the police force. It, it's just happenstance that was found out. With the second group of Texans, the same thing. That officer was arrested for sexual assault. Now, what are the chances out of 2,000 police officers that two of those officers would be arrested for separate independent crimes, that their cell phones would be looked at? And that would reveal over 20 officers who are engaging in racist, homophobic, and sexist um, diatribe. So, you know, when you think about that, I, I just can't possibly believe that, that this is an isolated situation, that there's, there's got to be uh, other officers who are engaged in this. And, you know, whether or not it's presented as locker talk or locker room talk or, you know, that, that this is the way that they communicate with each other, um, it, it, it evidences a culture where officers, again, feel free to not only engage in this kind of, of, of communication, but to act on it. And, and that's why in San Francisco, right, there was a study that was done, an independent study that was done by the Hayward Burns Institute of Oakland, and it showed that African Americans were four times as likely to be stopped for traffic offenses seven times as, as likely uh, to be arrested, 11 times as likely to be booked, uh, and it goes on and on. And so uh, 
that could make us feel uh, maybe relieved that it's not just our personal problem, but uh, on the other hand, it just it, we've all we, we all read the news and we're all we live in not only in a city but we live in a country, and what you're talking about is something we've been following for a long time. What do you want to see us do? Uh, well, first of all, people have to care, and, and I think the fact that there are a couple hundred people here tonight <laughs> says a lot. Caring is not enough, though. You have to get involved. And again, you know, what I'm, I've been, I've been in, involved in, in, the, in the criminal justice system for 30 years. I haven't seen anything close to the level of involvement. I, I wasn't around. I, mean, I was alive in the 60s, but I wasn't around during the civil rights uh, movement. I was a little kid. But, you know, the level of, of activism and interest in San Francisco, we have, you know, five uh, people who have been on an 11-day or 12-day hunger strike. We have uh, activists who are out there every day who are doing work. We have, you know, people who have coalesced around Alex Nieto and Mario Woods and uh, Luis Gongora. And so you're, you're seeing, I think, an unprecedented uh, effort in San Francisco to reform our police department, our criminal justice system that I've never seen before. And of course, this is in the context of Black Lives Matters and what we're seeing, you know, all around the country. Um, so, you know, that's a very, very positive thing that people do care about the fact that we're, you know, spending too much money on mass incarceration, not em enough on, on education, and that, you know, we are incarcerating too many people uh, in this country. People do care about racism. Uh, people aren't, you know, one of the things we're seeing at in the court now is that jurors are raising their hands and saying, you know what, this is not a fair jury panel. There are no African Americans on it. Uh, there was one case where a juror actually accused the prosecutor of being racist uh, because of uh, something she said about, you know, justice being colorblind. So we're even seeing jurors who are activists. And the people need to speak up. If there's any one message, you know, we have to, to, to stand up. Um, there is a, a saying, it's Tikam uh, Olam, which means that we have to stand up for the voiceless, right? And, and, and it's, 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 a, it's, an, it's an ancient Jewish saying that I think represents what we need to do in San Francisco. Do you want to lead services next Friday night? <laughs> <laughs> no? Okay. Do you want to open up for a couple questions from the audience? Yeah, I think that'd be great. Okay. Um, so I see first person I saw right there in the corner. We're going to get you a microphone. We're going to ask you to ask a question and to keep your question brief. Okay. Um, hi. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm a neuroscientist and a software engineer here in the city. So I really appreciate you bringing up implicit and explicit bias. Um, there's a new trend of policing technology called predictive policing. And my question to you is, um, what can we do so that the next wave of police technology does not amplify the, the racism that's already uh, seen inside police departments? So, so you're, you're a neuroscientist. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Now, have you done any studies on, on bias or implicit bias? No, uh, sorry. Uh, not implicit bias, but um, 
association of uh, different attributes, particularly lying between uh, politicians and um, <laughs> and um, people of color. Wow, that's, you know, I, I have to really thank you because neuroscience, I think, has given us the means to understand, you know, where these biases come from. So please continue the work that you're doing. Um, you know, how do we predict biases? It's, 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 it's hard because when we're trying to make decisions, particularly under stress, as you know, that's when we default, you know, to mindsets that we have that rely on stereotypes. And we do get stereotypes from the culture, from watching television, right? There was a study that showed that babies are not racist, that they don't learn race associations until they're about eight months old when they begin, you know, associating with, with, with primarily babies of their own race. And most of us, you know, aren't necessarily picking our friends who are eight months old. But uh, I, I think we have to be aware of the associations that we're creating in our lives and that when we're talking, let's say, to someone who's a prospective police officer, if you're a neuroscientist, you're going to ask very different questions, I think, than if you're, you know, just approaching it from a pure employment qualifications background. So there has to, of course, be psychological testing, but you have to bring in people, I think, who not only understand diversity, but live diversity in our lives. Like, you know, if you were asked the question on the Jimmy Kimmel show, they asked the question of, of, of white Americans, you know, how many black friends do you have? Uh, how many uh, black friends do you have on your cell phone? And they would ask the person to show them on their cell phone. And certain people couldn't do it, right? Because they thought off the top, they're sure, you know, I know so-and-so, I know so-and-so. But they, they didn't really live that in their lives. And unless you, I think, are acculturated and you truly understand and get to know people of other cultures or other communities, you're always going to sort of react um, by fear. And that's why I, I think a, a big part of policing has to be connecting people in those communities and requiring that the police, requiring that... The, the police, uh, you know, f form friendships and relationships with people who live in the community that they're policing. There's a, a great show by uh, Morgan Spurlock where they took a skinhead and, and they had him live uh, with an African-American family. Uh, and by the end of the show, he had changed. And, but, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, we can do that with, with the police, but... Maybe, maybe that's what it takes. There has to be sort of a, a you know, religious experience or what we call a, a transformation, you know. And it's interesting because as, as public defenders, you know, we have those same biases which affects often the way in which we represent a client. For example, we, we had one lawyer who had a, a case uh, involving a, a young man from Hunter's Point, an African-American man who had a gun. And she could not understand why he would have a gun and why he would be afraid of his life. And a good friend of his had just been killed a week before. And, and so, so, so what, what happened was is that we had her assume that she was the brother of this young man 
who was actually a soldier in Iraq, had come back to San Francisco. And hypothetically, we had her as a brother deliver the eulogy for the brother who had been killed because he didn't have uh, a weapon. And suddenly, she got it. Now, you know, that's, that's role-playing to a bit, but it's really immersing yourself and trying to understand, you know, what it's like. Most of us couldn't understand what it's like to walk into a store and suddenly you're under suspicion that you're, they're assuming that you're going to walk into the store and steal something just because of the way you look. And, and that's a scary thing. Thank you. Let's take another couple questions. So I see all the way in the back hand. Hi. So um, I wanted to ask about the the issue of like what role should the community play with regards to control over how police are prosecuted. I've heard a lot of strong arguments uh, made for community oversight boards that would in fact have prosecutor pro prosecutorial power to say. Um, prevent certain instances from, like, to prevent certain instances where, like, cops basically uh, serve as their own judges. So um, what, would, what, would your, I, what would your, like, ideal model look like for community control over the police? That's a great question. So, you know, what, what can people do to ensure that police are held accountable, you know, when they commit crimes? Uh, it's a tough one. You know, in, in, in our office, we had learned in 2011 that there were a group of police officers who were out there breaking in people's rooms without warrants, stealing things. And it wasn't, you know, we, we tried to make these arguments in court and we were ignored um, by the judges and prosecutors. And it wasn't until we sent an investigator to the location uh, where this was occurring and they had a surveillance uh, camera there. And so we downloaded a year and a half worth of video, and we're able to compare that to the arrest that occurred. This is a hotel called Henry Hotel. And as a result, um, in every case, we found that the police were lying. Right? They, they said in the report, we knocked on the door, and Miss Smith came to the door and said, sure, come on in, look around. And then you look on the video, and you see the cops either using pass keys that they got from the hotel clerks illegally to get in people's rooms, or they were just pushing their way in. And so it wasn't until we had that evidence that they were held accountable. And we released those videos. As a result, uh, the, there were a number of officers who were convicted of corruption. And because of that, one of the officers turned state's evidence and testified against the other officers. It turned out that they were shaking down drug dealers. They were stealing their money. At one, at one point, they stole $30,000 in cash. Uh, they gave a pound of marijuana to some informants to sell for them. I mean, just really crazy stuff. And that was going on in San Francisco, and it was being run by a police sergeant. And this was just in 2011, right? So this is what's going on in San Francisco. But it was only because I think we made that information available to the public that they had to do something about it. If we just made a complaint to the police department, let me tell you, you, you would have never heard about it. The Office of Citizens Complaint has even, hasn't even finalized their investigation, and that's been, you know, for four years. But right now, 
it's a very interesting time in San Francisco because you have these shootings that occurred. You have the investigation into the Mario Wood shooting. You have the investigation into the uh, uh, Milcar uh, Perez shooting. And that is right on the cusp, supposedly, cusp of being decided. This is a situation where, according to witnesses, a, a young man was trying to retrieve his telephone that had been stolen, and the cop shot him. And there was an autopsy that was done, a private autopsy, that showed that he was shot in the back. And, of course, the, the police are saying that he attacked them and that he was trying to steal somebody else's uh, cell phone. Now, that is right on the lap of the district attorney. Now, the district attorney, as far as I know, has never, ever found a police officer liable uh, for any type of shooting. And so it'll be interesting to see what does the DA do. And in terms of holding people accountable, to get back to your question, we can demand that that investigation be done correctly. In the Nieto case, a lot of the witnesses who testified at the trial, at the civil trial, weren't even mentioned in the district attorney's report. And I think it's a conflict of interest when the district attorney is investigating uh, these officer shootings. Why? Because they're very cozy with the police. That may not be the case right now in San Francisco, but normally it is, that they don't want to go against the police because they have to rely on the police to make their cases. And so they're not going to say this police officer violated the law, but it would be very interesting to see what the district attorney does with the Mario Woods case. I mean, even if they don't prosecute him for, you know, murder, uh, you know, could that be criminal uh, negligent homicide? I mean, you know, when, when you're acting in that way, particularly, you know, given, uh, you know, the, the amount of force that they used in, 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 in that shooting. Um, but that remains to be seen. If we look at what happened to the prosecutor who did not prosecute the, the police officer in the T Tamir Rice case, right? That was the 11-year-old boy that was killed because he had a toy gun. Or you look at what happened to Anita Alvarez in Chicago who withheld evidence of the La La Laquan McDonald uh, shooting. Those prosecutors were both uh, voted out of office. And so that is something also that the people can do when they're not satisfied with what their officials are doing. So what would assure you that a trial was not being done, it would, that there was no conflict of interest? You know what? You can bring in, for a very reasonable price, an independent group to do uh, a, uh, a study. They, there, there are these reports that are floating out there. Uh, that's one thing that the city can do, is they can bring in an independent investigator to look at all of these shootings and to come up with their own reports. The second thing is, is what I've called for, and that is to have the Attorney General come in. The Attorney General has a branch in her office that can do these kinds of investigations, and they've done them in the past when they have rogue police departments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've called on, on, on Kamala Harris to do, do, do this, and... and uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that, 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 that she does do that. Okay. Thank you. I saw a question in the front row. Yes. Can, uh, David, can you bring the mic up here? Oh, we, we want the rest of folks to hear you. Thank you, sir. Um, yes, if I'm missing people, thank you. Yep. You're, you uh, had two lawyers that were in... Um, public defenders that worked with a group of uh, 
citizens on a 21st century policing program that will call for different types of training and de-escalation in certain situations. Could you tell us what happened with that? Yeah, the, that's a great question. Um, right now, in front of the police commission, there's a debate as to whether or not the use of force policy should be changed. Um, the use of force policy as it is right now allows a police officer to use force anytime they think it's reasonable. And that's the sort of legal standard uh, that the Supreme Court applies. Reasonable might sound reasonable, but it basically is so vague that it allows the police to use any degree of force. Now, the people who want change, they want to change it to read minimal amount of force. That means that you use the least amount of force necessary in a given situation. So the question changes, right? Right now, the question is, can you use that amount of force? As long as it's yes, so if, if you know, I hope you don't mind me using it as an example, but if, if the rabbi here is waving around a knife, I can take a gun and shoot her. And I can shoot her 20 times, 30 times, 40 times, 50 times, and I'm going to be off the hook. Why? Because I can do it, so long as I establish that I'm afraid as a police officer, right? Now, the question instead should be, is that absolutely what I need to do? And, and, and anybody looking at the Mario Woods video, or even looking at uh, Luis Gongora, the most recent one, now there's not a video of the actual shooting, but you can hear it, and you can see that within about 22 seconds of the police pulling up, they've shot him twice with beanbags, and then immediately after, they, they shoot him. Can they do that under the law? Yes. Should they do that? No. I mean, you know, everything, I mean, we're, you, know, we're, we're, you know, we're in a place of worship. You don't treat human beings like that. You don't treat your worst enemy like that. And there was just, you know, I, I was at City Hall earlier today, and I, I talked to uh, Gwen, you know, Mario's mother, and she said, you know, that they left the South because they were afraid that that would happen to her son there. And for, you know, for, for them to move to San Francisco from, from Texas and to have this happen here. I mean, even if you assume that a person is waving a knife, right, that is not any justification for you know, shooting them down in, in, in a hail of bullets. There's a great uh, video of an actual arrest that occurred in Camden, New Jersey, after they went through crisis intervention training. If you go to their website, you'll see it. And it's this man who's walking down the street. He's obviously mentally ill, and he's waving a knife, and he's, like, stabbing it at people and, and as he's walking down the street. Well, what they do is they surround him. They continue to walk with him. They don't rush him. They, they just continue to follow him. They make sure that the public sh is safe by, by flanking both of his sides. And eventually, when he's waving the knife around, he drops the knife, and they take him into custody. Now, it took about 10 minutes, so they, they weren't able to resolve it in 22 seconds like they, would, they did for Luis Gongora. But the police were safe. He was safe and they were able to take him into custody you know, without incident. Now this is happening all over the country. There's, again, a report 
issued by PERF, which is the group that is, is you know, made up of, of former police chiefs and officers. And they came out with this 30 principles of use of force, and this is what they're recommending. Yet in San Francisco, the Police Officers Association, most of the police officer groups, and the police commission is not supporting this. Thank you. Yes, here in the third row. Hi, Jeff. Um, my name is Keith Baraka, and I would like to ask you a couple of things. The first one has to do with the implicit bias training that you're talking about. I'm a firefighter here in the city, and we've had a few problems as well, not to this degree, of course, yeah. but we always get, well, we don't have the money to, buy, to, to pay for this. But to me, this is so important that the, the money shouldn't be the issue because we can find the money. But I also want to ask you about what you think about uh, Senate Bill 1286. Senator Leno has authored a bill for more transparency. We've had a few of our local politicians who have opposed this. I think it's important for folks to su support 1286 and let Senator Leno know how important this is. But what are your thoughts? Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you for, for your question. Uh, there is a bill that's uh, in front of the Senate now, sponsored by Mark, Senator Mark Leno, and it simply requires that when an officer has suffered a sustained complaint, that is a complaint that's been found to be and adjudicated to be true, that that information becomes available. One of the big problems that we have is that officers who engage in misconduct, that that misconduct is never known. And often they're even hired by police departments uh, here. In, uh, in the instance of Mario Woods' uh, death, uh, several of the officers you know, had, uh, had uh, serious problems uh, in terms of discipline in their record. Uh, in uh, 2010, we had a situation in San Francisco where there were 68 officers who had misconduct records and that evidence was withheld from the defense. We didn't find that out until the crime lab scandal, right, where it found out that a lab technician who was not only testing cocaine but was using it um, also had a misdemeanor conviction. And the police department knew about this because they took her through the disciplinary process, but they never told defense attorneys, which they're required to do. And so that's how we learned that those officers had misconduct records. But we have something in California called the Police Officers' Bill of Rights, and it's very protective over police officers. And essentially, it's, it's almost impossible to learn about misconduct. And that's something that Senator Leno's bill uh, will, will change. In terms of the implicit bias training, you know, we heard a couple weeks ago Chief Sir say, okay, you know, people are going to get implicit bias training by the end of the year. Well, that changed, right? Within a week, he says they're going to get implicit bias training and anti-harassment training by the end of the month. Well, how did that happen, right? I mean, that's action caused by people expressing their outrage. So that's how we're seeing a certain degree of change. I saw your hand up over on the corner in the, David to your right. Hi. Um, first of all, I'm Queen Nandi. I'm with Poor Magazine. And first of all, I would like to say thank you for caring and getting involved and being here with us. And um, the other thing is more like a comment and a question. The comment is 
that the, the categories of biasness that you, that you were speaking of, it kind of, it applies to us in the, in the communities, us people of color, like when the police get out their car, it's not automatically, oh, hi, hop officer such and such, it's automatically like, uh-oh, should I run or go in the house? You know, it's, it's always this balling of anxiety, and that's why, like, some of the people that I've seen actually run from the police, I say, why would you run from the police? You don't even get involved with nothing. My bias comes from fear. It comes from fear, and you see them, because when I see the police in my neighborhood, it's the first reaction, honestly, I'm speaking total honesty in this beautiful place of worship, that I say, uh-oh, Either somebody gonna die or something is always wrong. And then the, the, the question that I want to ask is how the police is getting all the funding and all the, their, and the money for these trainings and the people demand different ways of excessive force, of use of force, but that we can't speak about that without speaking about putting more money into mental health services because our people, how do, we, how do we help our mentally ill out there who are constantly being murdered and criminalized when they are entitled to the help that they deserve all this money going to the police? I mean, it goes both ways. Thanks for your question. You know, that's, it, it, that's a tough question because you have to find officers who really want to be there. And care about the community and love the community and want to uh, be in, in, in a community where they can make a difference. There are those officers out there, you know, I, I know them. Um, but to be honest, it's few and far between. I mean, you might have an officer who can do his or her job competently and they're working and assigned in Baby Hunter's Point, but are they really invested in the community? Do they really see the faces of the kids when they're walking down the street? Do they really respect, you know, the elders that have, you know, worked so hard to make the community what it is? You know, or are they relying on, on assumptions and stereotypes? And I do think that it is possible uh, to, 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 to bring people from a place of maybe ignorance or insensitivity to a place where they they do care, but you have to start with people who really want to be there because, you know, I mean, if I hire someone in my office who really doesn't want to be a public defender and doesn't care about fighting for justice, you know, you, you might as well have a lump of coal, you know, sitting there. I mean, because it's not, it's not going to make any difference. But it's the same thing with, with the police officer. That's why, you know, when there are community events, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, we work in the magic programs uh, through my office, and you see the officers who are just standing in the corner or are just hanging out amongst themselves. You know, that's not what you want. You need officers who are going to be engaged in the community, and they are out there. There is a group of officers who are planning a, a, a trip to Africa for, for kids in Baby Hunter's Point, right? And I'm not saying they can do that for every kid, no. But those are officers who are communicating that they care and that they want to make a, a difference. You know, whereas uh, you have other officers, I mean, there's, you know, one officer who uh, was recently on audio tape basically just uh, arbitrarily saying, well, this kid's a member of this gang, this kid, we're going to put him here, this kid, we're going to charge him with a gang uh, case. And that was on audio tape. We actually have an audio tape of this officer making those kinds of statements. And not surprisingly, this is the same group of officers that 
that participated in a mass detention of a group of young men who were making a rap video. So this is the kind of thing, you know, that really tears down and destroys, you know, the, the faith that people have or should have in their police force. And it's so hard, like, you know, I, I know that SFPD wants to improve their image, but a after you read a couple of those racist texts, or you see the Mario Woods, you know, uh, video uh, uh, killing, you know, it just, I mean, it's, it's, it's like watching something from another planet, but it's happening right here in San Francisco. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's such a huge disconnect. You know, how do you win, how do you win that back? Since you're talking about youth, I think I'll take the prerogative of asking a, a final question, which is uh, there's a piece of legislation that the governor is actually promoting and hoping to get uh, on the ballot for November, and that's not sure yet, but it will move the discretion of whether young people are tried as youth or as an adult uh, from prosecutors to judges, I believe. And I wonder what you can say about that, if you're supporting it and if you think it's important. In our country, we've not only criminalized children. And remember that the juvenile justice system, the purpose of it is supposed to be to reform kids. And all the science and the neuroscience has shown that kids don't have the ability to make the same judgments that adults do and that they are able to change and rehabilitate and reform. Um, but there, there was a change in the law in the 90s that allowed prosecutors to decide whether or not to charge somebody uh, as an adult. And uh, in San Francisco, we've been successful in many cases in resisting that, not in all cases. The DA still does that here. But in many cases, it's routine that they charge kids as adults and they get life sentences and they end up being in prison uh, for the rest of their lives. And so this is something that definitely needs to be changed. And when we talk about the criminalization of people of color, that's where it starts. And it starts even before that, right, where you're suspending uh, uh, kids of color at a much higher rate than you are, uh, you know, their, their white counterparts or their Asian counterparts. You know, you're making decisions. And, and you know, we, we always say, you know what, uh, it's not my fault that there's so many uh, African-Americans or people of color in, in jail. It's not my fault because that's who the police arrest or that's who the prosecutors charge or, or that's who the, the, the judge orders to appear in court. But the reality is is that we all have decision points in our jobs where we're making decisions as to whether or not to, to charge a kid as an adult or a juvenile. We're making a decision, uh, you know, as a judge, whether to hold somebody in custody or not. And so as we're making all these decisions, that's where the implicit bias is, is, uh, is uh, affecting it. I mean, there was a, a judge uh, who I know who was the chief judge of a small state, and he told me a story about a training that they did. And he said that they got all the judges together at this training, and they passed out a file uh, to each of the judges. And in the file was a police report, a rap sheet, uh, and a, a charge sheet. The only thing that was different is the mugshot. In half the files, they had a mugshot of a black person. In the other file, they have a mugshot of a white person. And they asked the judges to do th two things. They asked them to set bail, and they asked them to sentence. And he said when they collected all the information and, and figured it out and calculated, he said that they were shocked. He said that in every case, almost without exception, the bail was set for 
20 to 30 percent higher for the uh, the black uh, uh, defendant. Uh, and they said also for sentencing, the sentencing was you know 20 to 30 percent higher almost in every case. And he said that they were just speechless. Now these are people who have the responsibility of making decisions with respect to race. Now, you know, I want to end this on, on a positive note. Okay. The good news is that what the research found is that when people are made aware of their implicit biases, that there's a self-correction factor. And so what they did uh, with these judges is they told them that for a period of time that they would be monitored for racial inequality in sentencing. And they found that in those cases, the judges would make an adjustment where they adjusted sentences down once they were made aware of it. And so that's why we as public defenders feel we have to raise these issues. When a decision is made, whether it's to charge a child as an adult or a juvenile, whether it's a decision to decide whether to grant probation or not in a case, we have to recognize that these biases are there. And we have to be part of that change. We have to write about this. We have to talk about it. We have to go down to court and watch what's happening there. You know, people like Brian Stevenson now, um, uh, an attorney who handles death penalty cases, uh, have been talking about this for years. And so we need to get out there and talk about uh, these issues amongst ourselves. And I know that um, after tonight's program, uh, you're going to suggest uh, something similar to that. We're going to do that. Instead of waiting till we get out there to do that, we're going to do some of that in here. But first, uh, thank you so much for everything you've taught us and for all your work. And, and thank, you. thank you. And thank you, everyone here, for being here and for all the great work you're doing. So... Um, Thank you also to each one of you. Uh, just as you were saying, we each have decision points. We each had a decision point today. Every one of us had a decision point to decide to come in here today. And some of us are people who come here all the time. And we decided to come here not for a holiday um, or for a religious school, but to come and learn something about something really important in our city and also in the hopes of meeting people who come from a different part of the city or from another community. Um, who aren't part of the Jewish community, maybe, or aren't part of this congregation. And other people made a decision to come into a place that you might not have been to before. So I want to invite you to stay for a little bit longer and to ask each other a question about what brought you here and what's been your experience with police in your life. And we're going to do that for a short time, but we're going to take the opportunity of being here in the room together to ask each other a question. You could ask each other one or both of those questions, so I'll say them again. What brought you here tonight? And what's been your experience with police? And I want to invite you to be uh, in a group of three or four people, or just two if you want to, and to do that with people you didn't come here with. So um, I'll give you a moment. And then I'm going to say the questions again. So if you want to move to another row and to sit with somebody you didn't come here with, you could be in just a pair or a th group of three.
So I'm going to, I want people to get a chance to go home and get a good night's sleep. So we're going to do this for a total of 10 minutes. Um, and I'm going to invite you to sit down with whoever you're, you're going to talk with and to ask those two questions. What brought you here tonight? What's been your experience with police? And then we'll come back together for just a moment of wrap-up. And if you're deciding to leave the room, we'll invite you to go out into the foyer so that people can hear each other in here. friends got bas mitzvah here. Um, but this was really, to me, um, I ask kids, are you, are people prejudiced against you? And sometimes they don't even say, oh no, no. So wait a second, the three of you walk into a store after school, how are you treated? And you know they pop up and around. So I said, I said, here's, here's the deal. You three go ahead. I'm a teacher. I'll go in everything out of the goddamn store. They'll never see me. And then we split and they just broke up. It is true. They really look at you. But see, they, they, they just take it for granted that that's how they're treated. And if you can't be able to, you know something? If I were a kid, I'd start feeling like Because, oh, I'd knock something over. Because they were a piece of dirt. And that was really interesting. So, you know, and I said, don't you understand? And at your age, people tell me, act your age. But you are acting your age. You know, so it was, but I really loved that whole part 29. Please, people, because they, they said, I'm only here because I I you remember the police who walked the ones that you were 10 minutes late for school. Excuse me, why aren't you in school? But, but you they cared about you because they know your mama. Yeah. Well, that's why when I when I got transferred to Marshall, I had the worst day of school. This was, you know, because the teacher left in the middle of the semester. I came in, and they thought, I'm the bad guy. She left because she got tired of teaching. 
uh, I never took a day off. But the next day they came and they said, we know why, we know who you are. You were my mama's teacher, you were my aunt's teacher, you were my, so, and they said, don't mess with me. So, and they knew I had a little quirk. And the quirk was, if you wanted to get in a fight with me, and you didn't want to back down, I had a pass, and you could go out of my classroom for five minutes till I calmed down. And it gave them the power to be the adult. And they said, you still have that pass, and I took it out, and they said, oh, it's going to be an okay year. But it's funny, because, that was somebody who knew your whole family. And that community policing is what really If something mean. happens to that family, they will be who their person is to show you. Know, I love them. And that is non-existent. And, and in my neighborhood, the sad part about it is the black